0: A Podcast One Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. On this episode, we're going to talk about the very important and long standing relationship between the US and Australia on the eve of a very important meeting between President Trump and Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. And of course, Dr Keith Souter, very well suited for this particular role. He is a master of knowledge in terms of international relations. Dr Keith, a little about yourself.
1: Yes, yeah, so I've got a background in international politics. I've taught the subject now for over 40 years. I particularly specialise in trying to make sense of complicated issues. So I, I look at... What the current issue might be, in this case, the meeting between the two heads of government, the United States and Australia, give some of the background, the historical context, because we live too much sort of in a 24-7 news cycle. We need to get a sense of context and a sense of history and also some speculation about how things could evolve rolling into the future.
0: And my name's Kate. I'm Dr Keith's producer. So we are talking today about this meeting that's about to happen between Trump and Turnbull. Um, But even more so than that, um, we're talking about the, the history of the alliance between the US and Australia, especially after last year, the very first meeting between Trump and Turnbull. A lot of eyes were on it after a very awkward start of the inauguration last year. Just fill us in a bit of what happened then so everyone's on the same page going into this discussion.
1: So Trump and Turnbull had a telephone conversation and Trump um, was warned by the Prime Minister, look, we have this agreement with your predecessor, President uh, Barack Obama, that you would take some of the asylum seekers and settle them in the United States.
0: And this is a phone call on Inauguration Day?
1: That's right. So very early on in the Trump presidency, Trump... Paul Luxvip was not briefed about this. He said it's one of the worst deals he'd ever come across and all the rest of the usual Trump bluster. Uh, Remember, this was a president who's committed to building a wall to keep people out of the United States, and here he is being forced to honour a commitment made by his predecessor to take a handful of asylum seekers. So Trump... um, was really quite angry in the conversation, had a bad tone to it. Turnbull, who's very good at sort of hosing things down... Try to make light of it later on. We do have now the entire transcript of what was being said, and it was a very rough meeting indeed. Um, So in a sense, um, in in the period since that meeting, we've seen um, Americans trying to reassure Australians, look, the alliance is still good. Don't worry too much about what Trump had to say. Deep down, we have deep connections that go back for decades. Therefore, don't worry too much.
0: And they did meet eventually in New York City. And that was quite a positive uh, meeting in which they both pretty much declined to comment. Well, they skirted around the issue of the inauguration conversation.
1: Absolutely. I think saying skirted around is good. I think that both of them realised that it did not reflect very well. And it may have added to anxiety within their respective countries. And clearly now, uh, Turnbull in the United States is going to get the red carpet treatment. And the Americans are going to really lay it on for him, so they're almost trying to forget that earlier confrontation.
0: But this, what's this really interesting about this whole meeting? The media is really beefing up the importance of this, and it's the headlines everywhere at the moment. What the, has going to happen this weekend with Trump and Turnbull? However, as you point out, which you're about to go into more so. It doesn't actually matter whether the President and our Prime Minister get on very well because the relationship is so deep and is being nurtured all the time in other ways, which is quite probably surprising to most people, Keith.
1: Yeah, so it's an arrangement that goes back to December 7, 1941. So the history of this is that Australia has always had a worry since the invasion in 1788, has always had a worry that other countries would come and attack what the whites had themselves now just claimed. So the French, uh, the Dutch... Uh, that later on, we were worried about the Russians on our eastern seaboard. We still have cannon installed relating to a possible attack by the Russians in 1855. Uh, and then later on, the Germans are Japanese. So there's always been this belief that we're in the bottom right-hand corner of the map. Uh, it's very easy for the rest of the world to fall into this large area, which is Australian territory. Australia is responsible for 10% of the Earth's surface. So it's mainland Australia, it's Antarctica, we're the largest single claimant on Antarctica, and also um, we have the exclusive economic zone. So it's about 10% of, of the Earth's surface is actually under Australian control. So it's a huge landmass. There's always this feeling of vulnerability. And so Australia, since 1788, has always had to have a great and powerful friend. So between 1788, and World War Two, it was Great Britain. And then um, with the onset of World War Two, the British made it quite clear they were going to tackle Germany first. Uh, that was going to be their area of concentration. Uh, but, of course, they did have Singapore and they had some ships in the Far East, just in case the Japanese got into any mischief. Well, the Japanese did get into mischief on December the 7th, 1941. They attacked Pearl Harbour, forced the Americans to come into the war. And the Prime Minister at that time, Curtin, then said, well, we must now look to the United States as our great and powerful friend rather than Great Britain. This caused no end of controversy amongst the Conservatives in this country who said, no, the British are our kith and kin, not the Americans. But anyway... Curtin started that process of cooperation with the United States. Remember that for most of American history, there was never a large standing army. That's why the Americans have a right to bear arms. They don't have a large standing army. In the event of anybody attacking America, you're going to have armed civilians shooting you. So uh, as recently as 1940, the army of Greece was bigger than the army of the United States. So the prevailing view amongst Australian uh, diplomats and politicians is, look, Britain is is the superpower. We have to stay loyal to Britain. Uh, From 1941 onwards, December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor, the Americans started to reinvent themselves. And within four years, by 1945, the United States had become the global superpower. Great Britain was broke. And so we then looked towards the United States as our great and powerful friend. And we used the same formula, namely that we would be involved in all of America's wars in the hope that America would come to Australia's defence if it were required. That was the arrangement that we had with the British, which explained why we had Australians fighting in the Boer War. It's even before Federation. We were involved in African wars, um, as well as, of course, World War One, World War Two. So... After 1945, we then get a a defence alliance called ANZUS, which is the Australian-New Zealand-United States Defence Agreement, which was set up um, as the Americans were trying to improve relations with Japan in 1951. Japan, of course, had been destroyed by the Americans, but then was being rebuilt by an occupation force. The Americans said, well, look, we want to build up Japan. And so uh, the Australians said, well, look, if you're going to rebuild Japan, we want to have protection from further Japanese aggression. And so the Americans said, all right, well, we will enter into this, what we call the ANZUS agreement. And that's why I get politicians who always talk about ANZUS. It's actually an empty treaty. ANZUS simply says that in the event of an attack, the countries will consult with each other. That's all. There's no automatic obligation on America to defend Australia or for Australia to assist America. When you actually read the text of the wording, the New Zealanders, by the way, have actually poured out of answers. So from their point of view, that no longer exists. The New Zealanders have said, "Or oh, we want to have um, a nuclear-free New Zealand. Therefore, we don't want to have American warships in our way. So we, we had this very strong alliance on a very flimsy bit of paper, which is the ANZUS Treaty, but we have intelligence agencies that cooperate. For example, there was an agreement in 1947 called UK-USA, which involved the five Eyes. that's the United States, United Kingdom, um, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. No politician was told about that for 30 years because the problem is that politicians approach every issue with an open mouth. Mm. So you never tell the politicians what you're doing for fear that they might let the cat out of the bag. So we had this secret agreement, which also involves New Zealand. So it's interesting that New Zealand has publicly pulled out of ANZUS privately and secretly, is still cooperating in the realm of intelligence gathering. So we see how the countries get knitted together at the level of intelligence agencies, defence forces, financial concerns, etc. So, by all means, focus on the politicians. They love the focus anyway. It's good for their ego. But deeper down, there are these reasons why the United States and Australia have this very tight connection.
0: And who is aware of the connection? Like who's working on it all the time? I know you just mentioned them by name, but just a yeah. bit more detail on that.
1: Well, the people who would be aware of this are obviously the intelligence agencies, the defence specialists, the people like myself who teach international relations Um we, we are the ones who know about all of these things. And it's, it's at a relationship which is being permanently reinforced from one day to the next in a variety of ways. Um, and, of course, the war on so-called war on terror has forced the United States and Australia to cooperate much more. Um, so this is done each day, all day, every day without publicity, Uh, Without telling the politicians, if you tell the politicians they'll get into all sorts of mischief and, and release things they shouldn't be doing. A good example of this is Pine Gap. Pine Gap in Central Australia is one of the most important US spy bases in the world.
0: But also, Marta, i just interrupt you for a second and say that hardly anyone knows about it. Exactly,
1: because the, the Americans don't want to publicise it. Um, the Australians certainly won't publicise it. They will talk about it being a joint installation. Well, the joint aspect may be that Australia employs the gardeners there, but the real work is done by um, the United States, particularly CIA and some of the other spy agencies. Crucial base for controlling American spy satellites when they're over this part of the world. For example, at Pine Gap, we used to listen to uh, Osama bin Laden ring his mother on a regular basis. He used to ring her in in Saudi, um, and he was a good boy. He used to ring his mother each week, and we used to listen to him. The problem is that He uh, never discussed operational details with his mother. Damn
0: it! So bin Laden.
1: So we didn't get the information about impending attacks or anything like that. But we were able to do that from Pine Gap. So Pine Gap is very important, but we don't publicise it because if it were to be publicised, we'd drawn into the... public dispute, etc. And so the Pine Gap base is very important. So you've got to bear in mind then, as in all things with politics, you have the superficial level, which the media focus on, glitz and glamour and, you know, uh, personalities. And then down below... At the level of what I notice now is being called the deep state or the establishment, you've got the agencies that are working together, irrespective of what the politicians are doing. They're the agencies that work together, um, and that's what knits together the relationship. So no matter, you know, if Trump falls out with with Malcolm Turnbull, that's no problem because we're still working together. We still love our American cousins, irrespective of the sort of person they have in the White House.
0: You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. We're talking today about the very long-standing and important US and Australian relationship, how it started, where it is today, is it still important and especially with Trump and Turnbull meeting in the US um, and headlines everywhere putting all this important stress on this particular meeting. But ultimately, Keith, this is not important, this meeting.
1: No, I don't think it's all that important. It is from the media's point of view because we're always looking for new angles and we love covering personalities. But it is a relationship that is on a daily basis. Um, The real challenge for Trump and Turnbull, and it's a a challenge for all of the other organisations as well involved in the United States and Australia relationship, is what do you do about China? Mm. So um, that, that's the crucial question. The biggest challenge for Australian foreign policy is how do we manage the relationship with China? So we, we are friends with the United States and China, but we're an only, only an ally of one of them, which is the United States. However, our major trading partner is now China.
0: See, this is where I find the whole thing quite interesting, Um And I'm not sure what to think because morally, obviously, um, America and ethically, we're probably on the same sort of um, plateau as that in terms of the way our structure of society works. But then you've got China, who is a much bigger trade partner because of the amount of people that live there. So uh, where should our loyalties lie?
1: And that's a debate that goes on behind closed doors in Canberra. Uh, For example, there was a dispute between um, the Australian Prime Minister, John Howard, and his foreign minister, Alexander Downer, on what would happen in the event of China attacking Taiwan. And um, John Howard.
0: And just to quickly clarify, Taiwan, well, it's an ongoing dispute. Just quickly put that into context <laughs> for people that may so not know. So
1: Taiwan it. Is, a, is a renegade, well, the Chinese will say it's a renegade province of China, which really should be controlled from Beijing. Right? So it's an island off the coast, got an interesting history in its own right. Now, uh, so you've got ongoing tensions, although Taiwan is also a major investor in China, which shows you know money makes the world go around. There was a speculation years ago, what would happen if China were to invade Taiwan? And John Howard said, well, we will automatically follow the Americans, and therefore we would support the Americans standing up for the Taiwanese, the the great American ally there. Alexander Downer, by contrast, who's concerned about trade, was said, well, we may need to work with China on this issue. They're our major trading partner. And again, as I say, money makes the world go around. Do you really want to offend your major trading partner? And we've got to bear in mind just how vulnerable we are to a downturn in the Chinese economy or even the Chinese government saying, well, we no longer like the Australians mm. and, for example, stopping all of their students from visiting Australia, which you can do. It's more difficult in the United States, but they could easily just simply say, right, no more foreign students to to go to Australia. Now, that's a third of our overseas student market.
0: It's $100 million dollars a year, business turnover minimum.
1: Yeah, it's a huge market. Mm. And the export of education, as it's called, in other words, bringing um, overseas students in general into this country, the export of education is now Australia's third largest export and number one in the country case of Victoria. So it is a major issue for our economy and the Chinese are a major player within that major um, assessment for the economy.
0: Now, here's a little spanner on the works because we talked earlier about how our alliance for many, many decades has always included New Zealand, but they've separated themselves from America now. Why they're a small nation of two million, three million, I don't know what it is. Four million. 4, Four million. All right. I was <laughs> round <right> about there. <laughs> But they're very brave to do that. Yeah. Why are we not as brave? What do we fear that they don't?
1: Well, because we're closer to Indonesia and there's yet another dimension to our foreign policy, which we need to talk about at some point, uh, which is the whole relationship with Indonesia. Indonesia is going to become the regional great power. At the moment, we are. We're number one. But we're about to become number two and then it'll be Indonesia that's number one.
0: Purely from a population perspective? Population
1: and the economy. The economy is growing and it's a young population as well. So it's not just raw numbers. It's the fact that you've got young people very attractive market for a lot of export industries. You know, if you're in the United States, Coca-Cola has said, look, this is our ideal market. It's a hot country. Everybody's thirsty and they don't drink alcohol because they're Muslims. Therefore, that's the market for Coca-Cola and all their soft mm. drinks and other things. So so Indonesia is very important for us and we fear an invasion of Indonesia. Now, this is a whole separate But isn't that sorry. an
0: old school concern? Because I never remember my nana talking about that, like 15 years ago, that Indonesia was going to invade us. But really?
1: Yep. Really? That's still on the radar screen. I'm afraid, Kate. Mentally, the, nobody in Canberra likes to talk about it in public, but we do talk about it in private.
0: What would be gained by that? Well, because and how hard would it be to be invaded for Indonesia to invade us?
1: Well, they bought the East German Navy at the end of the Cold War. They bought the entire Navy, so they've got all those ships, uh, and they're a large population. And they look south and they see an empty continent. Now, much of the continent is not suitable for their type of farming. We do dry land farming. But the northern part of Australia is a very wet part of Australia and will get wetter thanks to climate change and so would be suitable for their style of uh, irrigation and agriculture. So they would gain if they were to invade this vast, empty country to the south.
0: Right.
1: So that means, therefore, from an Australian planning point of view, we are still worried about invasions. I don't think that we run the risk of an invasion by the old Soviet Union, now Russia. We don't run a risk of invasion from China. We used to be worried about China. Now, of course, China is a major investor in Australia. They they don't need to invade the country. They can just buy it. Um, But now we're also worried about, obviously, the Indonesians. That's the major threat. So,
0: okay, I'm just trying to keep track of all this. And then you've got, so that's why we keep the alliance with America, we because we need the we defense.
1: Ne- we, we, we get involved in America's wars in the hope that America will assist us if we need it. Now, the record of America honoring their end is not very good. Um, the most recent problem with that was East Timor. When uh, John Howard asked Bill Clinton for assistance over um, the deployment of forces, this was just after the referendum mm. in the, what was then the Indonesian, illegal Indonesian province of East Timor. Mm. Um, and we were going in to help those East Timorese work for independence. Um, and the Americans refused to get involved. So it's interesting. We're the only country to have fought alongside the Americans in every war in which the Americans fought in the 20th century and we have started the 21st century by fighting alongside the Americans in Iraq in 2003. Only Britain joined Bush in that invasion. Nobody else. Saudi Arabia wouldn't get involved. None of the Gulf states would get involved. So it is interesting that we are consistent in paying our insurance premium in the hope that the Americans will come to our assistance when we need to make a claim on that insurance policy.
0: Okay, and just quickly, the Americans under Trump have become quite isolationist. When you look at the world and and how important trade is these days, why would they do that? He's a businessman. He sees markets in China. He sees markets in Indonesia. Yeah. Why on earth would they try and close their doors or limit access to America?
1: Uh, the, the, well, America's got two strands that's worth bearing in mind. One is this notion of isolationism, which is a, the longest continuous thread in American foreign policy. goes all the way back to George Washington, the first president, who said, keep out of Europe's struggles. They're, they're all mad in Europe. Keep out of Europe. That That... Uh, theme in foreign policy has continued all the way down and a number of, of variations and Trump tapped into that sense of combat fatigue. Americans are exhausted through all the wars that they were fighting under George Bush and then Barack Obama. So that's one strand. The second strand, as you say, is the, the whole question of trade. And as a business person, why isn't he in favour of greater trade agreements? Because he was playing to his domestic market and his domestic supporters are ones who are suspicious of globalisation, cheap foreign labour. And so what he is saying is we need to bring businesses back into America. I think the President will be unsuccessful in that, uh, but that is clearly what the President is hoping to achieve. I was
0: about to say, why would companies pay top dollar to employ Americans in America when they could go to Asia and do it.
1: And, in fact, if, if Apple do start manufacturing again in the United States, they will use robots to build mobile phones. They're not going to be employing Americans. That era has gone in terms of American labour. So, yes, you're quite right. Um, but, you know, we're talking about politics. Politics is not a rational activity. Uh, what it, It's a question that you're running for election. You've got to make all sorts of election commitments. You've got to play to people's prejudices. So you don't give people the mm. truth. You tell people what they want to hear, mm. not what they need to know. And then just do what you want on the side. Exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and all this, of course, is in response to the question we posed at the beginning of this, is the meeting between Trump and Turnbull actually that important and
1: really, Keith? I don't think it's that important because we do have a good relationship with America, but it's one that we've got to keep always under review because the rise of China and then India... We'll create all sorts of new angles for us to get our heads around. Interesting stuff. Global
0: Truths with Dr Keith Suter is recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Production assistance by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.